0: Welcome to the Variety Hour on AM 990, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess, you're from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. to Talk Money on AM 990. Now, here are your hosts, Jim Shoemaker and Keith Quinn.
1: Welcome to Talk Money here on AM 990, the voice of Memphis. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. Jim, good morning.
2: Great show. We have Chris Sebald coming on, and he is, of course, Chief Investment Officer, President, President of, of Advanced, Advanced Capital, Capital, Management. Capital Management, one of our companies that we pay a lot of attention to. And uh, he's a regular guest with us, uh, similar to Bob Dahl. And I guess the, the thing that I like is that, that I know we're going to get answers from where he is in the trenches. Right, because he's making decisions every day, affecting billions of dollars, and uh, from a standpoint of what the consumer is looking for, what our end client is looking for, Chris is of course with his team, and he has several. And uh, and it's
1: yeah. one of the things we like when we're talking about managers. This is not theoretical to Chris. No. I mean he is not an economist. He is an active, active uh, manager.
2: Makes the decisions and has the emotions that go along with it. Plus the second half of the program, big question that that we got, and I, that's a question again. Remind everybody that all they have have to do is send us a question there or, or topic that they would like for us to discuss, and that is to talk money at shoemakerfinancial dot com talk money at shoemakerfinancial dot com and we 'll get it on and this question i mean I thought it was a great question should I pay off my mortgage why or why not? And so we've got about four or five, six points that we think are, are critical for, the, we answered this question for this person, but we thought, hey, this is one we should have on the air and we're going to answer that question.
1: Further. I think that's a great question. And especially now, you know, again, yesterday we put in a new all-time highs, record highs in the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And Chris
2: uh, is going to talk about that. He and, is. And uh, we got
1: the employment number this morning. Another and big what, thing. what
2: did you think? What did you think of that?
1: Well, it was, it was pretty much in line with expectations from where, We ought to be in the recovery. I think it's awfully low. Uh, We added 217,000 non-farm payroll jobs. And, of course, we'll be anxious to get Chris's opinion on that. Uh, The 10-year Treasury yields didn't really move that much. Stocks did. The futures went a little bit higher. Uh, But, again, about in line
2: with expectations. And futures are up a little bit this morning. They are. 2.6 million Americans were receiving unemployment benefits Uh, as of last week, Uh, and that's a difference, so we know we got that number. Um, That's a little different, though, than six and a half years ago when there were 9.7 million Americans. Right. That's a lot.
1: Uh, that is a lot. And now we have uh, – and I saw the headline but didn't have a chance to read the article, but we've created the, – the jobs that we lost during the recession have been created back. The jobs that we lost, of course, that doesn't take into account population growth because the uh, labor force is exactly. constantly uh, so evolving. So it was a
2: good statistic we'll look at, and Chris will help us out. Now, our key word, though, is – FOMC. <laughs> and so we hear it all <laughs> the time. I had somebody to ask me that somebody was discussing that on, on the news or something – and they just we were driving down the road and they said what does FOMC stand for i thought well everybody knows that but it was a legitimate question so that's our that's our term today not a word but a term and we'll give you that definition in the second half of the program and
1: that's an important one uh, well, that's and we, we should
2: understand what that one is yeah that's a big one to know so we've got a lot going on can't wait to talk to chris and so um hey I, i'm excited
1: We've got a great show today. Glad you could join us. I'm Keith Quinn. I'm here with Jim Shoemaker every Friday morning from 8 to 9 on AM 990, The Voice of Memphis. Of course, you can always listen to us in one of three ways, either Go online, uh, search for our homepage, KWAM 990. Just click on Watch and Listen Live up in the top left hand corner and listen to us on the internet. You can always go on the radio, search for AM 990, listen to us on the radio, or go to the App Store. Search for our free mobile app, KWAM 990. Download that and listen to us on your mobile device. Stick around after we go to Traffic Weather. Check out what's going on with Market Watch in New York. But we'll be right back with Chris Sebald, President and Chief Investment Officer of Advantage Capital Management. Welcome back to Talk Money here on AM 990. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker.
2: Hey, Keith, I want to ask you a question. We've got Chris on the phone, and we're going to start with him in just a second. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, before we get Chris into some of the things that I want to really dig in with him, and he does a great job with us, I, I want to ask you the question because Chris is an active manager. Right. But we hear a lot about the difference between active management and passive management. For our listening audience, let's get a definition on the table real clear. The difference between an active manager and a passive or active management or active investing and passive management or passive investing.
1: Sure. An active manager is going to, you know, they're going to rely on their research. They're going to look at the individual companies. They're going to make some decisions on what securities to buy, sell, or hold uh, based on the fundamental that research that they do. So, for example, they may have, and we look at uh, equity positions, you know, the stock portfolios. They might have 40 or 50 stocks in a, in a, in a position, uh, but if you have a passive manager, all they're trying to do is replicate the performance of a certain area of the market. So, if you wanted to replicate the performance of the S&P 500, that would be a passive strategy. You're trying to own the 500 stocks that are in the S&P. You're not making any decisions about the worth or lack of worth of any individual security. You're trying to own the market.
2: So, owning the market, when we talk with Chris in a second, owning the market means that the market's up 10%. That should be up 10%. It should be up
1: about 10%. Now,
2: Bob Dahl, a couple of weeks ago, we kind of touched on this with Him and with Chris, I want to ask the same question. But the reality is, you want a manager if he just beats the market say he's 55 percent of the time he's doing a good job doing a great job and he may lose the other 45 percent of the time but usually it's not that big they're not going to win big or lose big but when they do win it is a definite advantage to the investor
1: it is a definite advantage and you've got to look at it in the context of time you know there are going to be some losses but typically for the good managers and what we've always found is the wins far outweigh the losses as far as to the index and that's why you pay these guys uh, to you know to be an active manager
2: well for a lot of our listeners they think about that uh, we're into the summer months and june is the 10th of the 12 <laughs> <laughs> so the bottom third as far as performance but let's introduce our guest i mean he is chris Seaball, cfa chief a chartered financial analyst he's the president and chief investment officer of Advantis capital and a dear friend and a very smart guy welcome to the program chris
0: uh it's great to be here jim and keith uh, uh. Great to be back on the radio with you in Memphis, and uh, looking forward to the show today.
2: You know, you, you do a great job. We've, we've interviewed a lot of your people, and they're always extremely astute and very sharp and, and help us out a lot, but now we've got the, the man.
0: The guy, that's <laughs> the right.
2: Guy. And I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> let, let me ask you, Chris, I mean, uh, you're constantly in. So we kind of talked about active and passive management. Can you kind of give us your thoughts on the difference between active and passive management?
0: Yeah, you know, Keith uh, laid it out really well um, in terms of replicating an index or as an active manager, the goal is to try to beat that index and use the insight and the research that they have to generate a better outcome for for the clients, either in a fund or in an investment strategy um, that might be an individual's uh, personal investment portfolio overall. Um, you know, you have, to, you have to make sure you understand how an active manager is going to try to achieve that goal of beating the index, and in many cases, beating the other peers out there. And you have to think through, one, um, what capabilities, what resources, what advantage do they have in order to do that, 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 that they can do so in a sustainable fashion over time.
1: And, Jim, um, I think that's so critically important. And Chris, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you, but when we think about, you know, managers and, and you just take a, you know, Bernie Madoff was a great example. Phenomenal returns but would not explain his process. Right. No one could understand it. Uh, you know, you've got to do your due diligence on all of these and things. And when
2: it's too good to be true, it is. It almost invariably
1: is. <laughs> it's too
0: good to be the, true. The trick is so many investors, because it's, it's easy to do this, and it's sort of a seductive. They look at the the, the past returns. And that becomes a big driver of their decision making. When they have to try to divorce themselves from that, everybody does, and really look at the process, look at the research, look at the insight, and and look at the the, the capabilities and the tenure and the quality of these people that they're putting their money in the hands of to try to try to achieve their goals.
2: You know, I appreciate that coming from you, because as the chief investment officer and the president of Advantis, your job is to manage the guys doing the work in the trenches and looking at their... And I'm sure there are times when you think, why is, why are we losing in this particular area? But the reality is, you know the deep down in the weeds thought process that's going on. You have faith in that process. You, you have faith in the individual, uh, which sometimes uh, is, is so uniquely different than the average investor.
0: Yeah, usually it doesn't get to the point where I'm surprised the reason why they <laughs> might be losing. <laughs> okay. right. Right. No, maybe I <laughs> should yeah, have said surprised. Yeah. quickly because yeah. right. uh, we keep it we keep a close tab on it. Um, but you're right that there are times when you know our estimate of what's going to happen in a stock, a sector, the overall market, and how that might play in doesn't go our way. <laughs> And then i you know I understand the reason why we're not performing um, in that case now, our performance has been real strong um throughout the last several years, and uh, it's been uh, a really good time to be an active manager in the strategies that we've that we've held but you know, you you, you got to stay on it all the time. There's no uh, there's no rest in this business to try to beat the index and try to beat your peers.
2: Yeah, that's a great uh, point.
1: And I think, you know, focusing on, on or getting away from focusing on that performance number because you absolutely cannot guarantee performance, but you can guarantee the process, right. and the process will lead to performance and if it's the right discipline. process. That's and that's discipline, discipline, and it's repeatable, and that's what's key.
2: Well, I really want to ask Chris a couple of questions. And the economy, you know, we, we've seen the economy, to. Kind of, kind of muddled through. We've got to learn that word. Uh, Bob Dahl was on a couple of weeks ago, Chris, and he used the term "muddling" and you know, uh, a "wall of despair," as Bob so clearly is able to define. But I, I'm getting. I want your opinion. You know, what's holding back the economy? I mean, I know the winter. We had a tough winter. You guys definitely did in Minneapolis, St. Paul. But uh, I mean, across the board, the East Coast had a tough winter. So, is what's holding the economy back? It, besides the cold weather.
1: Yeah, that's weather. the only kind of winter they have in Minneapolis, that's right. right? That's right. true.
2: Cold weather.
0: <laughs> now, this one was severe. Um, <laughs> but we can't blame the entire uh, U.S. economy's uh, lack of growth or disappointment on Minnesota. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> can't quite do that. Not a bad idea, though. There were some other parts of the country that were pretty nice, and people can probably still get to work. But other than the cold, we certainly have had uh, an impact from the global demand that's been slower than it had been in the previous years. You know, think about emerging markets and where we started this year. Uh, that was one of the first shock points, even before we got to Russia and crime, the Crimean situation and the crisis that we have over there in Ukraine. We already started to see early on that the emerging markets weren't going to be part of the engine of global growth that they had been in the past. Uh, think to China. Now, China's still doing fine, but their growth rate is lower than it had been the year before, the year before that, and then the decades before that. So the, the slower rate of growth and uptake in the overall global economy is certainly having an impact. And then in the U.S., and this is, this is one of the areas that you know from an expectation standpoint – Um, caught us a little bit by surprise. We expected that housing was going to be a bigger catalyst, and I think on the show we've talked about that. Mm. And in the winter, it sure seemed plausible that it was the cold weather in parts of the country that slowed it down or held it back. But even into the spring now, and everybody knows this pretty much by now, that it certainly has been lower volume, lower production uh, than most anybody expects, even though prices have continued to rise. So one of the factors that's a big one in our minds in terms of uh, getting to escape velocity or let's say 3% on on GDP growth in the coming year is dependent on housing. And that's not as strong, and we're not as confident in how much that can contribute coming into the next, into the remainder of the year now.
2: Wow, that's, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great point. Now, we're going to discuss in the second half of the program for everybody listening FOMC. FOMC. That's a term that um, we talk about all the time. And, and Chris, I'm going it's not to ask, like OMG. It's not like LOL. <laughs> SEC, but <it's> <laughs> whatever. But here is the thing: it's uh, interest rates. You know, have surprised us somewhat this year. by you know they're not they're not rising. If we have talked to you in January, I believe you would have said by the end of the summer we probably would have been seeing something like three percent, maybe three and a quarter. We're still at that 2.5, 2.65. It's just not picking up. What's going on? I mean, what's going on with the treasury yields? What's your thoughts?
0: Um, you're right. Interest rates, you know, this, it was us and probably almost everybody in the market that thought interest rates were going to continue to rise a little bit. And the primary driver was that it, the economy was going to get a little bit better and maintain uh, a little sustained growth, which didn't happen in the first quarter. We know that now. Um, the other part was that we thought we might get a little bit of a lift in inflation to support that. We haven't seen that either. So we're, those are the two biggest drivers for interest rates overall. But you know, our market is certainly not one that's just contained within the domestic walls of the United States, so the borders and the boundaries. And certainly what's been happening overseas in developed countries and developed regions like Europe is having another impact on our overall market.
1: Well, Chris, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, and I want to talk a little bit more about Europe in detail. But first, before we go to a break, why don't you quickly address the employment number that came out this morning and just tell us the impact of that on the markets. We're seeing the 10-year treasuries dropped, but futures are up. Uh, We added 217,000 non-farm payroll jobs. What impact is that having, and and what do you take away from that?
0: So the main thing is that the the numbers came in about uh, as expected. But what we need right now, because of this whole backdrop we talked about, was upside surprises. So we need for the market to be sustained and for interest rates to start rising up, we need that number to be higher than everybody expected. I know it sounds strange um, for those interest rate expectations to be fulfilled. Mm. And I can talk about that a little later after the break. Well, if you let's want do that because I want
2: to that. come back and also I think inflation – In Europe, and you were headed in that direction, and I think, you know, we just have time. We have to take this break, but I think that's something I want to talk about, too. And a
1: really interesting development with the European Central Bank yesterday.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker, and we're speaking with Chris Sebald. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer and President of Advantage Capital Management. We're going to come right back and talk some more with Chris about what's going on with the economy, especially overseas in Europe, and interest rates with the European Central Bank. But now let's go to Charles Osgood for the Osgood File. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk Money here on AM 990, the voice of Memphis. Of course, Talk Money is brought to you every Friday morning from 8 to 9 by Shoemaker Financial, which has been providing professional advice, quality products, and excellent service throughout the Mid South since 1978. At Shoemaker, it is not about the plan. It's about the results. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. We're speaking with Chris Siebald. Chris is the president and chief investment officer of Advantage Capital Management. Chris is an active manager, has explained to us some of the differences between active and passive management. Uh, and now we were talking a little bit about the unemployment report, the number that came out this morning. Uh, Chris, you were telling us about the impact of that and on the interest rates uh, and the stock markets.
0: So maybe just some some early read here. We're just about to open up on the stock market. and It looks like futures are headed up a little bit in uh, expectations where the Dow might be up about 40 or so and the S&P up about four points. And we also have the 10-year treasury, as you've mentioned, Keith, that's down a little bit. And this was a good number. You know, it met expectations. Unemployment rate was a little lower than forecast. We had uh, good uh, hourly wages. Over the, uh, over the month and year over year, so it, uh, it was good. Why are things a little bit different? Why would we expect that, or why are we seeing interest rates that are lower? The market is, though, is, is ready and it needs to have upside surprises in some of our economic data to fulfill what we expect will happen in the next coming quarters. And when we don't get that in this read or you know the next data points, it gets a little disappointed, and I think that's one of the reasons why interest rates right now are lower on this. Um, another part of that is what's going on over in Europe. And, you know, what we've seen, even though we might be getting to a little bit better data in Europe, it's not getting any better over in Europe. And they're seeing lower growth, lower inflation, and that's causing their central bank to take some action.
2: Do you think their quantitative easing, Chris, is, you uh, know, I mean, they, they – they have a negative fund rate, and that 's a problem so can you compare that i mean give me I, I just don 't quite understand why europe's central bank doesn 't seem to be taking the the action steps that maybe that our central bank is doing
0: you know you 're exactly right i mean they 've kept their uh, their their target funds rate that 's similar to ours a little bit higher um than we have, they haven't engaged in the same type of quantitative easing uh, strategies that we have um, in the U.S. or in the U.K. Meaning, buying government bonds and buying other high-quality securities. Uh, they've been more focused on trying to inject lending through facilities that will give the banks now an attractive way to to lend or to borrow from the central bank and then lend to the private sector. And this is. They're, they're, the step now that they're using is to lower the rate at which banks can park deposits at the central bank from zero to negative.
2: So, so if you're, you're
0: gonna, a large. Yeah, if, if, if a large I'm a large bank,
1: bank Chris, you're going to charge me <laughs> money to put my money at your bank.
0: I'm going to charge you money to hold it at the central bank. To hold it at the central bank. For bank. Liquidity purposes in overnight, you know, safekeeping kind of uh, measures. And the idea there is that that will spur you as a banker to go out and maybe ease your lending policies, your credit policies, with the hope that they can force more money into the private sector. That will loosen up that, you know, companies that are having a difficult time getting funds will now have a little easier time, and that will spur investment, growth, and employment. Uh, That's the hope. Is that working? out it's, of this policy. It's
2: not working, though, is it? It's not at this point working.
0: Well, it's just brand new. Remember, this just came out yesterday. That's true. Um, so it's, you know, what is what's what is new, I would say, is that this, it's another strategy, and it's a different one than the Fed, to try to drive down right. interest rates overall. And that part of it is working a little bit. You know, we have seen now, especially in um, the the... European countries that have had very high interest rates—they've come down a lot. Two or three years, two years ago, we were talking about Italy, Spain, and Portugal as having these enormous government bond yields—you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent—and those yields now are rivaling the U.S. As a matter of fact, I just looked at the screen today, and the Italian, Spanish, and Portugal yields are down um, almost 20 basis points today. So the policy they put in place yesterday is starting to have some effect on mm. on some of these. And even France. So France's yield on their 10-year Treasury, 10-year government bond is down 11 basis points. And that puts their 10-year uh, yield almost 1% below the U.S. at 1.67%. Wow. Well, so th- there are some big differences. Yep. Now, I'll just mention one other thing. There isn't demand in Europe, though. So they're trying to force this money in. Uh, to get uh, the banks to try to be more aggressive to lend. But the take-up in loan demand is not strong. Um, And that's due to a lot of factors in terms of overall demand for growth in in a a region where demographics have a significant headwind
2: demographics that's a huge well i'd love to talk to you about that we don't have time today well it's one
1: of those things that you've mentioned before the problem the european central bank has is you know that's
2: 18 different countries Countries.
1: 18 you know distinct little entities and the federal reserve has got a much easier
2: task in a certain sense to control monetary policy which we'll talk about the second half of the program that's right that f-o-m-c thing there you go uh, Chris, so far, I mean, you think about it this year, the S&P 500 up 5% year-to-date. Stocks continue. I mean, we're at all-time highs again. I mean, you know, the index has set 14 all-time record highs. In fact, 15, because I wasn't counting yesterday. Uh, uh-huh. So we, it just seems like we've got... Ups and downs, but yet there's uh, there's more ups than they have been downs, and you think about that. But but there's this issue of June being, as I started the program out, tenth of the eleventh and tenth of the worst. In other words, the tenth in the place of the worst months of the year. And guess what's eleventh and twelfth? August and September. So yeah, we're, yeah. we're not looking good if you look at historical facts. But it seems to me that stocks, or we're at record highs. It seems to me that we're just moving and moving, and we all know there's a correction coming. But in your mind, what's causing stocks, even with the economy, as you started out earlier, not so hot, just kind of muddling through, what's causing stocks to continue to reach all new highs?
0: Well, I think uh, the, the main thing with stocks right now uh, and risk assets in general, things like high-yield bonds, um, they tend to perform really well in environments where there's not much economic volatility or inflation volatility so today with the with the report that we had on on the employment situation um, it really hit the mark and what that does is it reduces uncertainty overall from the big picture it doesn't tell you which direction we're going to go if it's going to get hotter in terms of the economy or colder but there was you know, if people were offsides, they couldn't have been offsides by much in that um, because the data came in right way, the way the market expected. That's great for stocks because that certainty level at the underlying element um, really gives stock investors a lot more confidence, and then they tend to go up. Um, and we're experiencing a very low volatility environment overall. You know, I mentioned economic data and growth and employment and inflation are all parts of that. Um, as we can look at some indicators that tell us the market's view about volatility overall, and it's incredibly low. It's actually one of the lowest points that it's been over the last 20 years, right now. Um, and so that's part of the backdrop, along with the Fed's, you know, even though they're pulling back from quantitative easing, we still have super low interest rates, they're still buying at an, at an incredibly enormous amount. And the ECB is um, now going to be providing further stimulus. So all of those things are good for stocks and good for stock uh, movement in the near term, meaning in the next, you know, I should say in the in the in the in the next few months and quarters.
2: Okay.
1: Well, Chris, so those we don't- are. The- Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask you when you're looking at these stocks and you're looking at the the price to earnings multiples. You know, when we talk about uh, PE ratios, we've talked about that and defined it before on the show. Do you have any concern about that and the growth in earnings?
0: Well, and that's yeah, that's sort of a, another picture. So, as an investor, um, we kind of like two things, and we can't always have both. We like the investments that we have to go up because it it affirms the position, makes us richer makes us feel more confident and makes us feel like we're on the right track. But at the same time, we want those investments in the future to go up again as well. And we can't always have both um, because sometimes the investments go up faster than the fundamentals that are supporting them um, would, would um, suggest. And we've got a little bit of that going on right now that we've seen the multiples in the U.S. stock market increase by quite a bit over the last year. The S&P 500 has gone from 15.5 to 17.5, meaning you're paying 17.5 times the amount of annual earnings in the S&P 500 on average. And although that that doesn't stand out historically as an enormous level like in 1999 – doesn't stand out anywhere near that. Um, the S&P 500 or price-earnings ratio was in the 30s back then. But what it says is for that same level of earnings, you're paying a lot more. There's two things that got to happen. Either those earnings have got to go up a lot, or you're just going to get a lower overall long-term return in the ensuing decade or so example. So that's the part that makes us a little bit nervous, is we've seen these multiples expand. We've seen earnings improve, but not nearly as much as we've seen stock prices rise. So all else equal, we would expect, because we're, we're not thinking that earnings are going to expand by an enormous amount to completely fill in to this P.E., that investors should be thinking the returns they're getting going forward are going to be less than they had last year. And the year before.
2: But at the same time, what you're saying is there's a lot of things that are positive. June's not a good month, it's August, September, but there's still things. We are still climbing, but we need to be concerned and, and somewhat uh, aware. Now, that tells me, and I know we got to go with this segment out of our program, but the reality is that tells me active managers think about all the things that Chris is telling us, make decisions, and outperform non-active or just passive management
1: i think that's a fair
2: statement And that's a good statement active chris,
1: managers live eat, and, and sleep this stuff and
2: i mean he said we, we don't just pay it you know no, it's all said. the time i did like the fact that he told me no surprises yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> they're aware chris as always sir you've done a great job for us explain some very detailed things uh, i appreciate your your the way you go about that for us and we thank you for that uh, man we look forward to having you again and soon
0: Jim and Keith, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Hope you have a great day in Minnesota. Have a
2: great day in Minnesota. That was awesome. Thank Thanks, Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, <Go> guys. <laughs> have a good day.
1: I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. We've just been speaking with Chris Seabald, and we are going to come back and talk a little bit about whether you should pay off your mortgage and define this interesting term FOMC.
2: I got to figure that out.
1: FOMC. Think about that one, (laughs) Florida. I don't want to think too much because we can probably come up with some interesting interpretations (laughs) of FOMC. But stick around, and we'll tell you the official definition right after we go to Rebecca Brasher for a Mid South history moment. Welcome back to Talk Money here on AM 990, the Voice of
2: Memphis. I'm Keith Quinn here with Jim Shoemaker. You know, we're going to talk about the FOMC. I'm going to ask you that question first. But then we've got the question about how should I pay off the mortgage? And uh, maybe, maybe not. And uh, we're going to talk more about just doing, just in doing the math. Because so many times people go into the process. So in the program coming up, I'm going to try to walk us through four, five, six things that people need to think about if they're going to if they're considering paying off their mortgage. But, you, but go ahead. And
1: you can always shoot us a question. Talk yeah. money at shoemakerfinancial We'd love to get that on the show. We'll, we'll answer that for you. So uh, please feel free to do that.
2: And that's that's exactly where this question came from. But now, first, F O M C. Now, I, you know, I know that everybody listening, most everybody would say, "Oh, I know what that is," and I
1: think most people do.
2: Well, it was shocking. It's shocking. They don't. So FOMC.
1: Is the Federal Open Market Committee. What do they do? Right. When we talk about the Fed, this is what we're talking about, the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. There are 12 Federal Reserve Banks in the United States five of the heads of these banks sit on the Federal Open Market Committee, and seven of the Board of Governors sit on it. These are the guys that set monetary policy.
2: Okay, now monetary policy is different than fiscal policy. Fiscal policy comes out of
1: Washington. This is what comes out, you know, spending bills originate in the House of Representatives, have to go through the Senate and then be signed by the President. Fiscal policy.
2: Fiscal policy. Now, everybody should understand that. Monetary policy, F-O-M-C. That's
1: right. That's open market,
2: uh, you know, we talk
1: about open market operations. That's been the quantitative easing. That's a Adjusting the interest rates, the federal uh, funds rate that's now at 25 basis points. So the Fed basically controls that, the short end of the interest rate curve, and then through their operations and quantitative easing, they've expanded the monetary base and trying to hold interest rates down.
2: And so from now on, if you hear the term FOMC, F-O-M-C. it's the Fed. And you can
1: think the Fed. You can think Janet Yellen. They meet eight times a year. You know, they're again they're setting policy, and it's been incredibly important because that's been one of the most powerful tools we've had over the now, last few years. She's a
2: political appointee. Everybody needs to be aware of that. But that's right. She's supposed to be. Apolitical,
1: apolitical, confirmed by the Senate, uh, and I believe that she is. Uh, in other words, she shouldn't be influenced by what either party thinks. Exactly. It's strictly what's in the best interest of the economy.
2: And we've got a long history. Maybe, maybe some point in time, there's because the FOMC, they're the Fed. It's an interesting history. We go back to Thomas Jefferson. We go back to Andrew Jackson. You know the National Bank. I mean, there's a lot of history around the FOMC, and it just didn't happen overnight. We, you know, people forget that we're a 200 year old country, and there's been a lot of history about how we formed our banking policies. And uh, granted, a lot of it comes out of Britain, uh, some from France, but the reality is we have built this system, and and through the historical data that you know that you know it and the things that we've gone through building the system has been something of an osmosis it just didn't come up and happen. There's been arguments over it, severe. Well, I mean, yes. it's, the Jacksonian period is <laughs> That's a great right. period. Our own president from <laughs> Tennessee. But uh, we ought to do that sometime, just do a, just an FOMC history. I think
1: that would be great. It's very interesting. And the thing that I always love about this country and talking about this stuff, you know, we could criticize the Fed or, you know, maybe not agree with everything they've done. But this is a great system. Oh, a phenomenal. This system. is a great country. It
2: is. I mean, I, I, do, I do know that from, from what we see. See as we study, you know, other countries, other emerging markets, and things. Yeah, we're we are wow, we're a great great, great, well great country. Well said. All right, here's the question: Should I pay off my mortgage? Now, here's the reason why: Market is up, all time highs yesterday. Ah, man, I, should I pay my mortgage off? And I think that's a very good question. And so, let's walk through a couple of thought processes okay. that would I think help people make this decision. Because great question: Should I pay off the mortgage? Do the math and then decide how much debt uh, that you can stomach. And that's kind of the first thing I want people to think about. How do you feel about paying off your debt? Retiring your home loan makes sense if your stomach churns at night. And when you just think I got to pay off that mortgage. I got to pay off that mortgage. So you're saying
1: if if the fact that you've got a mortgage hanging out there, that you owe money, that you're in debt is bothering you if that's if that's your issue.
2: Peace of mind. Peace of mind. Sleep factor. Absolutely. You got to say and you know, I don't care, the math could say a hundred different things. Peace of mind is important. So that's number one. Emotions are real. Absolutely. So that's number one when you start thinking about this, should I pay if if you can't sleep at night because you've got a debt with your mortgage Absolutely. Number two, though, is before you pay off your mortgage debt, which is probably lower than 5%, Right. look at your consumer debt. Look at your car debt. Look at your credit card debt. Look at your the vacation you took two years ago, and you're still paying on it. <laughs> or the Christmas bill that you developed this past year, and you're still... So if you've got something that's got a higher interest rate well, associated you, with it... that is usually consumer debt. Right, is all your consumer debt, 12, sure. If you bought saw, a television or... I saw you know. something the other day. You ready for this? Okay. I saw... We got to do a program about this. Somebody wanted me to sign up for a credit card. Okay, And they would give me a discount. It was a department store here in town. Right. They would give me a discount that day if I bought. That day. (laughs) And and then it said, hey, no payment for six months. Wow. But the interest rate (laughs) when I had to make the payment was 27%. That
1: is outrageous.
2: I I mean, I had to read the fine print. And, and so I tell everybody This is a great
1: country, but there ought to be a log inside. Well, that. That, you know, the <laughs> that reality is, is bad.
2: before you jump on something like that, you
0: have to do your due you diligence. You have to do the
2: reading and do the research and think about it. But the reality is, if you have high consumer debt and you look at it paying off your mortgage, pay off the high consumer debt first. Before you even consider your mortgage. Absolutely, before you even consider it. And, All right, what's the, uh, what's the next step? Well, here's the thought. A lot of people say, well, I want to take money and I'm going to take this large chunk of my money. Say it's $100,000. Animal payoff. Why don't they think about how they might consider putting more money into their retirement? That's tax deductible. That money is growing on a tax deferred basis. Right. Uh, that could be a huge plus for you to have money that you put into your retirement accounts, it stays in a tax advantaged account, and then look at it in the future.
1: So, you almost are thinking of what is the opportunity cost of taking that money and using it for something, something else.
2: Something else, paying off the debt. So, plus, if you say, well, wait a minute, I, I think I'm going to pull my money out of my IRA to pay off my money. Man, you got to really think, t- that's tax that's going to be hitting you right then when you pull it out. And uh, if you happen to be uh, younger than 59 and a half, you got a problem. So be, th- be sensitive about that. We'll cover the rest Those of Those are
1: it. great things to think about yep. when you're trying to consider whether you should go ahead and pay off your mortgage. Uh, we're going to come back and go through the last three steps to walk you through this process to decide whether or not you should pay off your mortgage. But first, we're going to check out what's going on around town, and we'll go to CBS to see what's happening with the markets in New York.
2: Stick around. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back. I'm Jim Shoemaker along with Keith Quinn, and we're talking about the question that's uh, pay off the mortgage, maybe, maybe not. And, Keith, before we went to the break, we'd covered, you know, hey, if it's your stomach, it you just can't right. tolerate the fact that you've got to mortgage. to sleep at night because you've got a mortgage. You've got to get out of it. So, okay, pay it off. Number two, if you've got high consumer debt, pay that off first. Take care of the credit cards. And then come back and look at your mortgage. That's number two. Number three, if you're putting money into a 401K or an IRA, you might want to say, you know what, I could double up. I could put more. Uh, before I start trying to pay off the my mortgage, should I double up? Should I put as much as I can towards retirement? Think about the numbers. And, the, the you know, do the math. Right. Now, number four. But here's what some people forget. They'd say, okay, I'm going to pull all my money out, pay off the mortgage, and they deplete their reserve fund.
1: And that is not a good position that to be
2: in. A, you know, the emergency fund is just what it says, an emergency fund. And we recommend everybody to have an emergency fund at least six months of what your living expenses are set aside unencumbered that you can get your hands on for an emergency for an emergency I mean, exactly it's what it's for i mean so many people can end up by if they're draining their investments to pay off the mortgage could lead you know be house rich <laughs> And cash poor.
1: I and mean, I think that's a great way and to say a, it. House is, rich and cash poor. That is a
2: bad problem for some people. You end up, you can't get money out of the house. You, you know, maybe their interest rates are now too high. Uh, we've seen that. I had to work through with someone in Arkansas one time that that had happened. And, the, you know, and the death of the spouse and all kind of problems. So just be careful with that. But number five. Then you do the math. Weigh the return if you invested money. A lot of people say, hey, don't pay off the mortgage. Invest your money. Invest your money. And right. really see that. And obviously, if you've got a mortgage of 4% and you think you can earn 6 great. That's your choice. You've got a tax-deductible mortgage rate. But here's the problem. You've got to be willing to say to yourself, I'm willing to do this, but don't let somebody sell you on the idea of doing it. And then if it doesn't work, how are you going to feel if it doesn't work? that's the that's the real process there that's the that's what you have to say to yourself all right in 10 years if i didn't earn the 6% Am I going to be okay with this?
1: So if you didn't get the rate of return because your planning assumption is based on six. Now, I can tell you over any period of time, you may not get you six. You may not
2: get six. But the reality is, can you, uh, can you live with that Right. if your plan said one thing and you were not able to get to that? Because you, there
1: are no guarantees in investing.
2: And everybody needs to think through that process. Right. So, and then number six is stay flexible. I mean, everybody thinks, you know, should I go out and refinance? Well, that's costly refinance might be the thing to do. Shorten my term. You know, if I got a 30-year mortgage, refinance for a 15-year mortgage. Right. Nothing wrong with that. But again, look at the cost. Look at the fact that, hey, all of a sudden I've got a 15-year mortgage, but my payment may be $100 more. Uh, You know, are you willing to, to, to do that? Are you willing to have that higher payment? I think those are problems that you have. And then, you know, here's the problem. If you go out and you change your mortgage, and all of a sudden the economy does a downturn, your finances hit a rough spot. I mean, you go through this and loss of a job, maybe a sickness, all those things like that. Um, Maybe you can't go back to paying a lower rate. So what I suggest if a person wants to pay off their mortgage early, they don't want to do it lump sum, is make extra payments and make it on a very disciplined, systematic way. Then if you have a rough problem, then the reality is... You can go back to paying your mortgage the normal way don't worry about the early payments that way you 've got some flexibility, and that is so critical. So number six, stay flexible
1: I like that from a planning perspective, you know uh, again you're attacking the problem you're paying off the mortgage sooner, but you're not doing it in this wholesale selling out lump sum kind of
2: manner, and as you said, flexibility is so key absolutely so let 's review all right number one, if your stomach can't handle it, pay it off pay it off. I mean, get it done. And then pay the consumer debt off first. It's higher rates, and so you look at that. Uh, look at your retirement counts. Try to keep those moving. That's that's important, important. And that's you've right. got to think about the future. You've got to think about that 30 years 30 in retirement. 30 years. I mean, two people age 65, one of them's is going to make it to 90 that's probably. Right. So that's the statistical data. So be sensitive about that. Keep a reserve fund. Don't become house-rich and cash-poor. We're all so going to have emergencies.
1: Tax. You need to have that cash set aside for those uh, contingencies.
2: And then do the math. And, uh, you know, beware if your plan doesn't work. You know, can you live with it? Can you live with and it? And then stay flexible. Stay flexible. So I hope we have answered a good question here. I think we have. And but you can I, always send us a question. Absolutely. At talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. Talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. But today, Mr. Quinn, you're a veteran and I'm a veteran. And today is the 70th anniversary of D-Day. 70th anniversary I've of D-Day. I huge. I mean, that's, people it's, forget that. I mean, I know they're over there celebrating it, and I, I know that's a place that I've been. Unbelievable. But reality, D-Day.
1: D-Day. 160,000 Allied troops crossed the Channel to invade France and knock Hitler out of Europe.
2: You know, and I, we've watched some movies and some of them. I mean, I love Saving Private Ryan. We right. talked about that. You know, just something. We've got a heritage. You mentioned it a while ago. Great country. We'd forget that, but this is what it's all about. This is what it's
1: all about. My old unit, the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment. On D-Day, we jumped in at 3 in the morning. So the troops hit the beach about 6.30. Uh, we were on the ground at 3, and my unit took the first town in France, saint I like Mariglise. to see you
2: smile like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That means you're proud of it. That's what we're We're proud of our heritage. We're proud of our country.
1: We named all our drop zones at Bragg after different uh, actions in World War II. St. Mary's, one of my favorite drop zones down at Fort Bragg. Uh, it's a great tradition. It's a great country.
2: It's a great country. And We want
1: to thank all our veterans.
2: And I appreciate you, man.
1: I appreciate you, and I hope you've enjoyed our show today. We had Chris Siebald on, who gave us some excellent advice about what's going on in the markets, some insight into what's going on in Europe, and with interest rates. Uh, I want to thank everyone who works on the show. Art Frederick, our program director. Francis Fortner, our guest coordinator. Drew Johnson, who does a great job writing our Mid-South history moments. And Rebecca Brazier, who does an even better job reading them. I hope you'll join us next week, and we'll be joined by David Rochester and Jonathan McAllister. But I'm Keith Quinn. And I'm Jim Shoemaker. Join us next week when we will help you make the most of your money.
0: Jim Shoemaker and Keith Quinn are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services Incorporated,
1: securities dealer member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.